Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Jasper Cuppage, the founder of Camden Brewery. After missing a flight on a round-the-world trip, Jasper found himself stranded many years ago at the Westbourne pub in Notting Hill and soon he'd worked his way up from glass collector to owning his very own establishment via every single rung on the hospitality ladder. Later, Jasper began brewing his own lager in the basement of one of his pubs, and the rest, as they say, is history. By 2015, Jasper had sold Camden to AB InBev, the biggest brewer in the world, though it still retains the ethos that Jasper instilled in it all those years ago. In a highly enjoyable episode, Jasper tells us about the power of walking, how he brushed off accusations of selling out, and why a teenage brewing experiment nearly exploded his childhood home. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Jasper, thanks so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. No one can see us, obviously, but we have coordinated outfits. We're wearing plain white T-shirts, our no, uniform. Nothing better. <laughs> a crisp white T-shirt for a lovely Thursday morning. I can't, you know, I couldn't think of anything better to wear, but thank you. Like, thank you for noticing. No one else does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to start by giving you a niche, but very genuine compliment that you, Camden Brewery makes my favourite pint glass ever the oh. short stubby wide pint glass which i know is divisive and some people can't get on board with it but it is it is my go-to and i demand it by name if i'm ever ordering a camden hells the jack the, the, what's it called the, the jack the jack why yeah. is it called the jack so so kenneth grange is a great customer and a great old friend yeah. of camden also a really good friend of my father-in-law's and many moons ago he was at the horseshoe and he said you know what jasper i love drinking your beer but your glasses are terrible so why don't we design a glass together? And, you know, when you've got a gentleman who's designed the big pen, the TGV train, telling you that your glasses suck and he wants to make one with you, how could you say no? Wow. So we designed a glass together. And at home, I drink out of a very similar glass to this and uh, the Jack. And I go to the tastings at the brewery and I drink, they have tastings in a wine glass and I'd always, or different glass, and always be having different scores to all the bartenders. Then I'd go home and I'd, be upset because I wasn't happy with the scores that I was mm. giving and I was drinking beer out of the glass at home and go, well, these beers taste great. So anyway, when I designed the Kenneth glass, Jack was the, was a product designer who works for Ken and we, he said, well, why don't we design that glass at the same time? And so hence the, the Jack and the Jack is the designer's name. So everything we make is mm. designed with someone, we name it after them. So we've got yeah. a Ken, a Jack, et cetera. We've got every, like, loads of names for products that we have within the business and they're all named yeah. after someone who collaborated on it. 
And it sort of flies in the face of, I guess, the trend in lagers, which is for tall, precipitous, flute-like monstrosities. Yes, it's kind of like a short, dumpy stuff. Yeah, class, right. It's a, the antithesis to like to elegance. It's you know, yeah, it's, uh, yes, but it's a great experience. And I think the great reason is because you can you smell as well as consume at the same time, so you get a really good. And the beer that we make, hopefully, there's so many different senses that you have to get right, and aroma is a massive part of that. And so I guess you get aroma when you're drinking it, which is why it makes the drink taste and you know the sensation of drinking a good beer all much all that much better. Of course, and it feels good in your hand. It feels solid and wide and unpretentious. I love it anyway. <laughs> I love it, Jack, too. So there we, we go. We're friends, white T-shirt lovers, and, and, and Jack Glass appreciate it. So exactly. We We're off to an amazing start. So let's <laughs> let's go back then a little bit, because you grew up in Brisbane. That's right. Um, yeah. And the story about you, which I hear, is that you used to kind of concoct homemade beers at home as a teenager. Is that true? Yes, under the age of... It's very difficult to drink, I guess, under the age of 18. And it's yeah. a bit like America. You get carded everywhere. And I was uh, not proficient enough to find a false ID. So I started making homebrew. And I remember the first one I made him, I made in my grandfather or my father's house. He had like a outbuilding, like a garage that had, you know, it was, you know, it was in all intents and purposes, a small, a tiny little house. Yeah. So I made beer in there and it wasn't really, didn't really feel like it was working. It was still sweet and sugary. So I put a, an element heater in there and got the room temperature up to some ridiculous, I mean, it must wow. have cost my parents a fortune. Anyway, next day, lo and behold, what does yeast do it? ferments, creates energy, creates bubbles, and the whole thing exploded. And so there wow. was, you know, beer and yeast all over my uh, father's garage. So, yeah, it was an interesting start. But, yeah, like most Australians, especially Queenslanders, you know, beer was the first drink you drank, right? You know, of course. So, and so you kind of grow up with it, and you're you know, not at an early age, but a medium age to early, you know, early post-teens is it being in your yeah. life. Right? So I, you know, I do put that down to my love for drinking a good frothy beer, that's for sure. What were you like as a teenager? Because that paints you as a kind of mad professor, constantly tinkering and experimenting with things. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I was into a lot of things, right? Like I wasn't particularly, I guess, like you know, most people who've done what my, you know, my guess my career. I wasn't into school that much. You know, I went to a very good school, but didn't perform particularly well. I guess maybe it wasn't right for me, but I made some incredible friendships, and he yeah. loved it. Um, but I didn't do very well, you know, I, I'm dyslexic, so my career at school didn't didn't pan out as I thought it should. Um, but yeah, I was into everything. Lots of my friends were from rural Australia, so I spent a lot of time on farms working on, you know, on horses and and, yeah. and motorbikes and, and cattle properties or grain properties, driving, you know, massive tractors and things. So yes, I was I was an inquisitive kid. You know, I liked getting involved and up opening the bond and understanding it more. I asked a lot of questions. You know, I remember being paid to not talk you know because like, <laughs> i was you know into finding out and i guess yeah. i still live that trait today you know, i love i love understanding things you know, things i'm passionate about i like to know more about of course yeah. so what's what's australian beer culture like because in my head well i went there on my gap year and it was very much as many vbs as you could get down you yeah get a bit of sunstroke and then go home i mean i'm sure that's not fair at all but that was kind of, that's kind of the impression we have sometimes I think you know, beer is culture in Australia. You know, I think that's the big thing. It's part of everyone's culture. You know, everyone, every walk of life, every colour, every person, you know, it's part of everyone loves a beer, you know, and I think yeah. it's very sociable, you know. It's not, you know, like a glass of wine, which is stronger in alcohol. It's not like a spirit, which, again, is even stronger in alcohol. You can go out for a beer and a bit like a coffee, you know. So I think it's part of culture. And, yes, I guess going back 30, 40 years, 20 years, you know, those were the big, the big, brewers of the country, the Forexes and the BBs. And yeah, they're still there. They're still massively iconic brands, right? So, but since then, a bit like us, 
there's just been an explosion of, you know, in the early days. So one of my, I guess I was a big Coopers fan. Yeah, Coopers yeah. have been around for a very long time. Big family brewery down, um, I think they're South Australian. Um, they were a bit more artisanal, I guess, but still yeah. on a mass scale. Um, but then one of the beers I grew up with was Little Creatures. I guess they were kind of yeah. like the Australian Sierra Nevada, you know, the, you know, the pioneers of yeah. craft in the Australian market. And they were, you know, really interesting. And just, I guess, every, and I guess that's the outside of beer, you know, everything, their cultural beliefs, everything was what I got absorbed mm. in, the flavour and idea, but also what they stood for, right? So I think, yeah, they're, you know, so Little Creatures, I obviously grew up on Forex because I'm from Queensland. Um, yeah. Then my, my taste and preferences changed as I came into Europe and America and you know, started to try lots and lots of different styles and flavors. Yeah, of course. So what was your first job? Was that you was that in Australia? Or did yes, you yes. Australia? So, so first I was trying to work this out. Like my first job, I think I was a, a pantomime fairy for my mother in an apartment store. I'm not sure if I got paid wow. that if that makes that legitimate <laughs> as a first career. Yeah. Um, but I, the, the first job I officially paid for is I worked for a landscape gardening firm in Australia making endless miles of uh of footpaths would you believe it in new housing oh, wow. projects so day after day like mile after mile of making just you know hard graft and pouring and finishing footpaths but just felt like an eternity but then at the end of the day obviously finished off with a you know a cold beer which was all to me you know probably one of another reasons why i liked it so work hard enjoy a big beer so yeah so that was my first step into which again i hated right i didn't wasn't into yeah. being a landscape gardener that's for sure um but that gave me the money to get out of Brisbane and go and travel the world and ultimately end up in England. Of course. So how, how did you come to be in London? The story is, of course, that there was a, a missed flight, which is which is the big pivotal moment in your career. It is. It, just, it felt like a really simple thing back then. And it was yeah. obviously a fantastic decision. But I was on that Australian trip right around the world. I'd done a season or two in, you know, in, in, uh, in Canada and a bit of surfing down in Mexico. And I was on my the last leg of it through, yeah. through England because you bought, back then you bought a round the world ticket. So you had to plot your way around the world and then back to Australia. And I was on my way home and I came through England and one of my best friends from boarding school, uh, Robert Lord, was living here with a couple of other friends. And so I ultimately stopped and I said, I'd have a night here and then get back on a plane and off I'd go. Anyway, I stopped and that night there was a pub opening around the corner called the Westbourne, um, which is probably quite famous, I guess, from a gastropub movement. And I didn't realize at the time what was going on, but you know, I went there and I met a couple of guys I'd surfed with weirdly in Mexico and they were, you know, painters and decorators and getting the pub ready for the opening that night. And they invited me back and said, why don't you, you know, come for a drink when the pub opens? And I, anyway, I did and probably had a few too many beers that night. And the next day I missed my flight and lo and behold, they needed the glass collector. And so they offered me, a, I got a job there collecting glasses, you know, and I fell into a, I guess that's where the whole history of me and hospitality started. You know, I found a job and even though it was so simple collecting glasses, but I absolutely loved it. Right? It was a hospitality yeah. at the beginning. And it was the beginning, I guess, of the revolution of that comfortable hospitality, you know, not comfortable, not the right, but interesting new direction hospitality. It wasn't like pubs and it wasn't fancy. There's something really special yeah. and better in between where you could drink a good beer, have a great glass of wine and eat great food in a really great casual environment and the Eagle in Farringdon and the Westbourne were like the pioneers of this. And I got a job there collecting glasses. I was pretty good at it. I still like doing that actually quite a lot. Right. And then just worked my way through that and got promoted. And then from there just ended up working into hospitality and working for you know, some great, great and fabulous people across the industry from there out into Soho and all over the place. And yeah. Ultimately became my own boss. So what was it that, that kept you in England? Were you ever kind of, thinking that you might go back home to Australia? 
Um, well, I fell madly in love, obviously. I've got right. still with Lila. I met Lila, weirdly, at, at the, the Westbourne, you know, when we've been together for nearly, I guess, 25 odd years now. Um, but I just, no, no, never. I fell in love with England. You know, I love it. I still to this day, you know, yes, I'm Australian, but, and I love, you know, my mother lives out there and I love going home and I love the culture of Australia, but no, I feel very at home in England. You know, I yeah. love, and I, and, and I think hospitality makes me feel at home. I've got most of my friends work in the industry, you know, across the industry. I've got some incredible, you know, some of the, the best, you know, some of, fortunately, some of my best friends. And so, yeah, I love, I love being here and I, you know, and I'll be mm. here hopefully for, forever. I hope so too. So, how do we get from you working in various hospitality jobs to actually deciding to set up your own business? Where's the leap there? So, you know, ultimately I always thought I could do a better job than any boss that I had. You know, yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm, you know, great person, but gosh, I'm much better. And, you know, I was always itchy to kind of get my own, you know, ultimately get my own gastro pub. I guess the Westbourne was a massive inspiration for me. The guys who owned it were awesome. Ollie and Seb, I really enjoyed them, the way they worked, their respect. It was just casual but serious. I mean, so I wanted to open my pub, and eventually, you know, I, you know, I saved up a bit of money, got a couple of investors, you know, that were interested in doing something with me. And one day, coming back from my, you know, my Lila's family's home in over in North London, I went drove down the uh, high street in Hampstead, and there was a for sale sign on a pub called the Three Horseshoes, owned by was owned by Weatherspoons. Wow. Anyway, for sale, and I got out of the car, saw the for sale sign, and you know we're going back nearly twenty years, and the internet was as prolific as it is now. So it was, you know, you used to get a leaflet, or you have to find, ring an agent. So I took the for sale sign off the side of the building, you know, so no one else knew it was for sale, obviously, and rang them up and made an offer, and they you know, laughed at me, oh, no, no, this, this is worth much more than this. Lo and behold, you know, kept calling them and then left them alone, and you know, eight weeks later, they said, oh, you think that offer still? No one's really interested in this place, really. You'd be interested in getting it. And so, yeah, I bought the horseshoe, you know, it was my first step into my own business and, you know, the, and it was great, you know, and it did everything I wanted to do and more, and we still got it today. It's still a fabulous local yeah. thing, what it does, keeps it simple, you know, it's a great, simple local pub, right? So, and that's where I started and that's where the, you know, the, the beer business started was in the basement of it. Are you a, quite an impulsive man? I mean, do you go with your gut a lot? Because those two stories about you deciding to work in hospitality just because you missed a flight and then seeing a pub on the road and deciding to put an offer in. It seems like you're not someone who'll necessarily worry too much about the big plan. You just go for what feels right. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely very strong on, on, on thought and gut thought, but I, I don't come to those from a walking down the road going, I'm going to change the color of my shirt today. You know, I've been, right. you know, I wanted to get into it. It just was the right yeah. moment to do it, right? And I, you know, I see a, you know, I guess I see an opportunity that's, that I've been thinking about and there's the right opportunity to do it. You know, it's a very similar to beer. You know, I think, the Westbourne was built on, you know, farm to fork. And even though that feels like very normal today, you know, back in that day, back when we did the horseshoe, which is 18 years ago, I think, yeah. this year, you know, farm to fork didn't exist, right? So we were buying cattle from farmers, butchering it out with a butcher that we knew and bringing it to us, working with a boat, bringing that to us, getting coffee from a roaster, bringing that to us. But it came to beer, you know, I didn't know Mrs. Stella Artois and I'd never met Mr. Cronenberg, right? And that's the beers that we were selling, you know, and yeah. I think that's why I built the, you know, it's like, well, why can't we do that? In Australia, I could go to a brewery. Why can't I go to a brewery here? And well, well if I can't, I'm going to build one myself. I'm going to be yeah. Mr. Stella. I'm going to build a brewery in the basement. And so that's, you know, that's what we did. So that was about 10, 10-ish years ago. Yes, right? it was our yeah. 10th year birthday this year. What a terrible year to have to celebrate it. So we're 11. We're going to have a big yeah. 11th birthday next year. But yeah, so we're 10 years. 10 years in April was what was our birthday. So we had great plans for Camden for our 10th anniversary, but wow. obviously we were curtailed by 
by this wonderful year that we're going through. If it makes you feel better, I turned 30 in mid-March. So my big 30th plans were all put on hold. So I'm just going to be 30 next year instead. I think that's, that's probably the best thing that I've heard out of COVID, having to get to be 30 again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what was the beer market like back uh, a decade ago? Yeah, reasonably lonely, right? You know, I think if I look back, you know, there was the regional brewers like Adnams and, 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 uh, and so Fuller's, who I was friends, like friendly with, you know, the, the sort of people who operated or worked within them. When it yeah. came to a small brewing fraternity, there wasn't a lot of us. There was Meantime. They were, you know, they'd been around for probably five or six years. And there was Evan at the Colonel, you know, and then there was Camden, you know, and I think yeah. and that was it, right? So, you know, we could, to, you know, I built a brewery in the basement of the Horseshoe and it wasn't like you can go online now and you can order a brewery and it turns up and whiz bang and here you go. To build a brewery, I had to weld stuff and buy old things and put them together and read books and, you know, yes, it was a bit like the Wild West, but it wasn't yeah. like full on in your face like the craft beer scene is now, which is excellent, right? Like, you know, so there was probably three or four of us back then and now there's you know, over 100 brewers in London alone, let alone the country. So, yeah, it's an exciting, really exciting scene that so what, what was the very first product you made and what was the first prototype like? How long did it take, basically, from, from that first idea to actually get something that you felt you could serve? Um, well, you're still obviously tweaking today, right? Yeah. Every recipe, every batch you're looking at and fine-tuning. You know, it's the beauty of the business. But I think, but yeah, I remember, so I built a brewery in the basement. I'd come in at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd start brewing. It takes sort of seven to eight, nine hours of brewing, you know, making a lot of, you know, remember the, there's wooden floorboards above me, so all the steam's pouring through the pub upstairs. There's grain smell, hop aroma. Everyone's like, what's going on? And I remember, like, making the first batches and putting them in casks because we couldn't keg at that stage and putting them in. And then I remember someone, no, don't know who it was, but then wrote a big note on my computer downstairs that said, please, effing, stop you know just don't make any more beer this is terrible so the first batches were probably i thought they were probably fantastic but i guess you know uh they probably probably didn't get good enough for probably three or four five batches and then after that they've just you know they've kept continuously hopefully getting getting better and better and better but those those styles except for the pale ale that we've left behind the pale ale we brew today is kind of a hybrid of what we did back then and the lager that we have hell's our most i guess our most you know famous beer we've been brewing only the following year when we opened our new brewery down the arches down in um, down at Camden. So the Hells, which I suppose is your one of your flagship products, sits it's not it sits somewhere quite specific on the lager range. This is going to get geeky, I suspect, but this is what we want. Where yeah. where is it? It's it's halfway between something and something else, isn't it? Yeah, from a style standpoint, yes. Yeah. You know, so there's a re- there's two probably the most famous German styles is a Helles and and a Pilsner, and I love both of them and I was lucky enough to have, you know, my business partners, you know, Andreas, Patrick and Mark and also my father-in-law, but, you know, Andreas was as much into beer as I was and we could never choose what he, between us, I loved Pilsner, he loved Helles. Yeah. Like, well, we're going to make a Helles. And I was like, no, we're going to make a Pilsner. No, we're not. And I was like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to make a Hells, which is half Helles and half Pilsner. As if we've taken the characteristics that we love from Helles which yeah. is that kind of aromatic, lightly, lightly hopped and fragrant, beautiful, but then the body of a Pilsner, which is light and sharp and crisp. Yeah. And stuff them together because Hellas is quite a big, rich, bready beer. It's kind of a big drink in a beautiful big Munich beer hall, but you don't drink a lot of them. You, know, you might drink two, three, and then you're kind of full. You, know, you don't need a lot of food with it. Whereas Pilsner is like the champagne of beers where you can actually, 
you know, not again drink a lot of them, but they're more refined, but you can stomach quite a few of them. And so if I brought them together, I could make a beer that was distinct and full of flavor. Yeah. Yeah, sessionable. And I think, you know, I love it. I mean, I love all the beers we do, but I love, particularly love Hell's. You know, it's when on a great day. It's fantastic. I, I completely agree. In the right glass as well, which is crucial. <laughs> so important. In no, <laughs> mo, mo, almost most important. You know, no point doing all that work to get to the to a crap glass. That's for sure. Absolutely. When I, when I think of craft beer, certainly from back then, one thing that, that comes to mind is kind of, to be fair, terrible packaging and typography and kind of quite dark and grungy imagery. I don't know if it reflects the the kind of interest of the people who used to make it in their sheds. Perhaps yeah. that's not fair. But there wasn't anyone who was cool and clean and sharp and felt kind of modern and urban making mm. their packaging. How important was the kind of visual identity, even down to the typography? to the early growth and success, do you think? Oh, so important, right? I yeah. mean, if you look at, if you go back to the early days of Camden, the first one, two or three years, our, you know, we didn't really have a brand, you know, because we could never settle on what we wanted to be. But, yeah. you know, I'm, again, dyslexic. I love simple visual identities. So we've got a bold, simple and strong personality. I think you see that that reflects across our brand work. And don't get me wrong, there are some wonderful brands out there in the craft world, in other worlds, yeah. but they just work right for us. And we needed to strike a path that was on our own. Because I think, like you said, lots of people were doing skulls and crossbones and all yeah. those sorts of wonderful things and weird, whereas actually no one was doing a really paired back simplicity, but, you know, but, but charactered. And I think... That's what we did with Cam. I was very lucky. You know, I've got some incredible people who still work with me today, you know, who were, who were believed in that idea as well. And so, yeah, I mean, even though it's very simple, the hard work that goes into that simplicity is to tell a story because you've got this creation that you've been working on for years. You know, Hell's to Make is, a, you know, it takes four to five weeks to brew it. But then, yeah. you know, we've been doing it for years. And to talk about this wonderful potion that you've got in a simplistic way, it's how do you do it justice? So serifs are important and tones and textures and the label textures important all yeah. those things to kind of shout but from a from a real simplistic way right so yes it is and I, you know and you know you can see now with lots of other brands who you know who not look similar but have taken inspiration from what we've done sure. in a simplistic way which you know I, I really really love in the bold use of color and and some other typographic elements it reminds me a bit of brooklyn or it certainly did when i first saw it brooklyn lager which i mean is a great compliment because their visual identity is amazing it's pretty beautiful was that a big inspiration massive massive. yeah yeah. steve hindy's a friend you know and brooklyn's a fantastic brewing company garrick oliver one of the best brewers in the world and their brand i mean it was you know i can't remember the designer he's a famous new yorker who did their Mm. brand originally and it's just iconic right it's just You know, it's like a sports brand, but it's not, you know, it's yeah. just, and everything's about the serifs and the textures and, and simplicity at its best, right? I mean, if only we could be accoladed to what they're like, you know, it's a, you know, and to be called between us and that, that makes me smile from within, I tell you, because yeah, they are, a, they're a fabulous brand, fabulous brewing company. And you, uh, I know you worked with Sir John Hegarty, who's actually been on this podcast. Oh, really? Um, yeah, which is brilliant. But I mean, he was incredibly entertaining and just kind of, oozes wisdom in a very casual way was he was he important in that early branding process or even just in the wider strategy of where you guys would fit in the marketplace yeah so the first and like so, so so john's my father-in-law yeah so yeah. i was very fortunate to have him and not only is a father-in-law he's just a super good mate and a, and a great dude and you know yeah. you know cool and i'll ever be right he's so interesting <laughs> and just like you say he's just a wizard of knowledge you know like everything yeah. 
you know, in those, I used to sit in his office and he'd go, oh, yeah, but we need a serif. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and I love it. And now I'm totally inspired by font and typography. And yes, like he was the one that really grounded the brand. Like, so two us, so I never went to him. I never really knew what John did. You know, I'd been with Lila, I guess, but I knew his words in advertising, didn't really understand, you know, never, you know, really paid much of an interest. Anyway, two or three years in or two, maybe two years in, he's like, well, why don't you come and talk to me about how we do the brand? And I was like, well, what would you know? Anyway, off, off I trundle into his office and yeah, it was an incredible journey. And he's, you know, he's the one that, you know, ultimately the original serif that we have, original logo he created um, with a couple of the guys in his office. And then, and then I guess what was wonderful about John and it's about how kind of, that's what he's mentored me on is his management style was, you know, you're coming up with your own directions. I'm just going to be here to knock you from left to right and pad yeah. you in direction. So you ultimately, you're the owner of it. And that's, he didn't go like, this is how you should do it. It was almost like, what do you think? Oh, I think, oh, yeah, that's cool. Shape it a bit like this. And so, yeah, he was a, a great father-in-law, great business partner and a mentor. You know, he kept me on those lonely days of being your own boss. It was definitely wonderful to have him to be able to go and talk to you about wonderful things to take your mind yeah. you know, off work. Were there any particular kind of nudges or steers that really, really helped or really changed the course of things? From, oh, from John, John, definitely. I mean, definitely, the, you know, he... He helped me, art I was articulating what I thought was right and he helped me be confident in that articulation. I was like, I was always into this proud, simple and strong. He's like, oh, that's what you stand for. And you, know, you talk about making it better. Well, that's what you do, right? So write that down. Make sure you hold on to those things because mm. you know, you've got those beliefs. That's what, that's what your brand is. You know, you're not making them up. Lots of people have to try and get people in to write those beliefs down. Yeah. Well, that's what you believe in. So make sure you, you live to that. And, you know, and we live to that you know, to, the, to, to this day. And I know there's also in the early days, I think you mentioned it, there there were some friends involved and they may still be involved. Did was that was that important to I guess the the feel of the place, even just the workplace, that it was kind of a matey, warm, friendly place? Yeah, I was really lucky. Yeah. So I had three business partners, Mark, Patrick, and Andreas. You know, uh, Andreas being still one of my best friends. And, you know, at the time, you know, we're going back ten years, they, they were, you know, the best, one of the most you know, I guess prolific bar operators in the country. You know, well, mm. sorry, in, say say in the southeast, so in London, and they had really not only ten or fifteen venues, but they were really, really good, right? Iconic, yeah, well sourced, busy. Everyone wanted to go to them from a bar and pub standpoint. And yeah, so I had you know consumer knowledge straight away, and obviously they listed the beers into their pubs, and they wanted those beers to work because there's no point in them being a partner and the beers were failing in their own pubs because ultimately if the beers were failing in their own pubs, their bars wouldn't have been profitable, so they had to work. So getting their feedback on, you know, the badges don't work, you know, can't, no one can read them, they're too dark, or actually they just look terrible, or, you know, so we had first-hand, I guess, consumer insight. From, yeah. you know, not that we were looking for consumer insight, but we were getting it firsthand every day, daily, weekly. You could see, oh, wow, that batch is really working. What was good about that? So, yeah, at the time, it felt, you know, oh, my God, stop like harassing me. But it, actually, if you look at it, it was the perfect business setup. So, yeah, and they, you know, they were great and inspirational to the business and they you know, helped us get to where we got to. And still today, you know, we're still the main pour in all their bars and, you know, and the beers are still doing fantastically well for them. So, yeah, no, they're, you know, we're obviously none of us are partners anymore because we mm. sold the whole business. But, yeah, they're still great friends and great business associates nonetheless. And was there a moment early on when you kind of realised maybe this is going to actually work? Maybe we're going to pull this off? Because I can imagine you can get, any entrepreneur can get their head very much stuck in the weeds. But with something like a beer, maybe you just, 
one day you're at a pub and someone just orders it next to you. It must be a surreal moment. <laughs> you know, I still think it today, right? You know, it's weird. I still, you know, I pinch myself on things that happen or and there's so many moments where you think, oh my God, this is actually working. You know, winning a World Cup gold or winning a European Beer Stars or getting acknowledged for this or getting listed in something like So House or, you know, yeah. just like, wow. Or, you know, we're the beer at the Clove Club or, oh, you know, like, but every day I never feel like it's over, you know. Yeah. And so every day you're thinking and something, and that's why I love it because every day or every week there's this, you know, and it might not look like success in someone else's eyes, but ultimately it's a, a goal or, a, you know, something's happened and, so yeah, I've never stopped and God, we've made it because every no. day we're trying to improve it. You know, we have a big, big attitude within Camden to make it better, you know, and so from everything, beer and so consumer attitude, yeah. everything. I think every time I'm never no one's sitting on the laurels thinking we're over it. Because ultimately if you don't continue to improve it, yeah, then you haven't made it, right? Like so you've got to continue. So yeah, I'm always pinching myself at some of the things, some of the, you know, to be, you know, found by ABI and to be working with them was like a incredible moment right so yeah there's yeah every day or not every day but most weeks most months there's always like god actually we are quite good at this you know it's, yeah it's nice to get those you know, those feelings and has there ever been a moment when you're sitting in a bar and someone comes up and orders a camden hells and you turn to them and go i made that you know do you ever name drop like that i normally get called out by someone you know <laughs> like oh that's the guy who created that or and it's yeah 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 it me when you get Oh, sign my shirt, would you make? You know, obviously, I've had a few too many when they're asking for those. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like it even more when they come up and ask for hells and it's not on the bar. That makes me even more happier. And so the guy's like, oh, Have you got anything like a hells? Like, yeah, you should have something like a hell. You should have a hells here. So yeah, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I love that. Every moment you see a person with the jack glass or the ken glass or someone ordering, yeah. it, it definitely feels just as special to see that today. And you know, we're in thousands of venues and it still feels fantastic. So let's let's jump forward to 2015, which is when I think you started raising money via crowdfunding, which then was a thing a lot of brands did. And now maybe it's it's become something else and it's slightly less fashionable or less easy, I suppose. What were the, the benefits of that and, and what were the difficulties in it? Yeah, I mean, I think I was pretty naive to investing in finance at that stage. You know, I guess mm. if I look at how we model Camden, we self-funded for everything. So we were either funding our growth through our through our through profits or we were putting our hands in, you know, our partners' pockets, you know. Yeah. Like that was um and the guys at and they were really good, eh? The guys at Crowdcube knocked on our door and said, Hey, you've got a fabulous brand. Did you ever think about raising more capital? And Patrick, who was one of the, the three, um, he was obviously the finance arm of the business. He's like, that sounds like a you know, a great idea if we could make this work this could really help the future because ultimately we you know we've been at capacity every year we were turning customers hundreds of customers down we had a waiting list of, you know to bring you know bring people on and so we needed to 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 build, build another bigger brewery we, you know at that yeah. stage we had we were, we were contract brewing in belgium and we were contract brewing in, in in germany and so we needed we needed more and we needed lots more and we needed lots of money to do that and so, yeah, we went, so Crowdcube asked us and they were like, well, we're going to use you as a bit of a poster boy. We're going to put posters up all over the city. We're going to... And it went yeah, I remember. zero to nuts, right? Like we raised, yeah. you know, we thought we were hoping to raise a million quid and we ended up raising like nearly three million quid in like two weeks. We had to turn the thing off because there was a limit at that stage how much you could raise without a prospectus. Um, so it was fabulous, but nothing comes for free, you know, is what I'd say. And so then you go from three partners to 3,000 or 500 or whatever the, the list of, and everyone, mm. no matter how much they've invested, and don't give, don't take this the wrong way, some had invested 
50 quid and someone invested 20 grand, but everyone wanted a piece of you, wanting the coffee, yeah. wanting to give you feedback, which was wonderful. But I don't have a, I never believed in having a PA. I've never had a PA still to this day. And so I field everything so I can make sure I can filter the right things coming in so I can put my attention onto it. So I just was inundated with, because I felt responsible because they were all shareholders, right? And yeah. I was like never looking at how much they'd bought or what they'd done. Oh yeah, I'll meet you for a coffee. Oh, I'll meet you for, and so my life was just filled up for the first wow. however long, just catching up with investors, which was fun, but just taxing very hard. Of course. Yeah. And what was the usual correspondence? Did they have kind of suggestions? What, I mean, what, what do they want to speak to you about? Oh, everything and anything, you know, one to accolade and to say how proud they were to be involved. Most of them, I would have thought, not all of them, but there are a lot of core fans who wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. So they were loving having an involvement. So they just wanted to say thank you. And I love the beer and I love being so, although it was all positive, it was never, you know, it was all helping handing, right? So it was, yeah, that's yeah. why you could never say, oh, no, I don't want to meet you for that. No, of course you couldn't. No, that's great. Let me talk to you about it. So, yeah, it was always just, you know, other opportunities or avenues or you know, have you thought about making an IPA? You only make lagers, you know, all those sorts of wonderful and weird things. So yeah, no, it was all positive and great. It just was a lot of, a lot of work. And then I think you mentioned them before, but you then effectively very quickly after that sold the company to world's biggest brewer. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah it was. I can't remember the exact timeline, but it was within, you know, within 12 months, maybe eight yeah. or nine months. How did that come about? How did it go from, you know, people chucking 50 quid at you to someone chucking a lot more than that? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, being quite naive, we didn't realize how, how much of an impression we were making in the market, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we went from raising to then, you know, then not doing much, you know, as in we were then investing to build. And then about, I guess, I can't remember it was, maybe nine months later, 10 months, or maybe even 12 months later, AB, and then and also another well-known brewer or, or two others came knocking on the door saying, we're interested in working with you. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's fabulous. You know, really great to be to work with a you know, recognized brand. Yeah, if you want to put our beers on your truck, let's, let's talk about some wholesale arrangements. Let's work this out. And they're like, no, no, yeah, that'd be one part of it. We'd just really like to you know, maybe get involved financially. And we're like, okay, great. Well, how does that look? Well, we're not for sale though. Oh, well, you know, and then the story is as it was, we, you know, they were wonderful, you know, and they still are today. You know, we had a mm. great relationship from that day onwards, you know, and they, they, we worked through a, some ways of working and how, what we'd look at. And yeah, we came up with a, you know, a deal that was right for, for the business, you know, ultimately um, and right for the partners. Mm. And, um, and we did a deal, I guess, maybe 12, I can't remember how, what the length of time was, but yeah. And the, the people who invested through Crowdcube, you know, I think I can't remember exactly, but you know, got a handsome return very quickly on their money. Um, and then we partnered up with ABI, and so do we. To, and, and 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 so do we today. Some people, I imagine, a lot of your stakeholders were very happy with that. Others, maybe, kind of people who class themselves as fans, were worried. There was some criticism, and I guess the feeling was that maybe you were selling out to big bad corporate world. What did that feel like personally, and, and what do you remember from that time? It's hard not to take things to heart, but I yeah. knew what I was doing was right. You know, I knew how the structure and the relationship of the deal was set. And I knew from the discussions I was having and the agreement we'd put in place with AB that it was only going to get better. You know, mm. the beers were only going to get better. So that meant everyone who liked you was only going to get more enjoyment, more a better experience. And that couldn't be truer, right? And so, yes, there was hundreds. I mean, we were trending for days on 
commentary of people slagging me off or whatever. And, and, and rightly so. And you know, it makes you cause you to account. I didn't want to, I didn't do anything to upset anybody. No. You know, I returned an investment to the investors. Fantastic. You know, all the CrowdCube investors. And also I safeguarded the growth of a you know a capital hungry business for the future. You know, with you know, very soon after that we opened Enfield, right? The biggest brewing facility yeah. in the Southeast. So yeah, I knew what I was doing was absolutely right. So it was easy to deflect from a heartfelt, like I'm doing something wrong. And also, you know, I'm contracted. I wasn't leaving. I wasn't going anywhere. I was yeah, there for the, for the future. And so, yeah, and, and to a testament to us since then, you know, we've won more World Cups and awards than, you know, most, you know, the most accolades, small brewing company in the country. So beer's actually got even better since we've joined yeah. ABI and not because of anything other than us and hard work and, you know, and the facilities that we have to do it in. And there was some industry kickback as well. I don't know if it was just a kind of Twitter storm, but I remember Brewdog at the time got into you. Um, yeah, James. Anyway. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, we knew each other commercially and, you know, we sold in all the Brewdog bars and yes, they did a song and dance and decided to take us off all their taps. And and they did, right? Which is, you know, their stance on, you know, us not being independent anymore. And, and you know, for them, rightly so. That's what their brand stood for. But, you know, it didn't make any difference to us. There were one no. customer that we, you know, that we lost and we fulfilled it with a thousand more, right? So, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was nothing personal. It was more of a stunt from, on their behalf. Than right. Us, you know? And, you know, we, I still speak to James to this day, right? And he got me well that day. But, you know, we're, we're continuing to grow and have an exciting brand. Why is it that people seem to get so, so obsessive and defensive about beer? I mean, I can understand it, but there seems to be a particular mindset. Um, and people people really care about these things as if they're a football team or, I don't know, a family member or something, which is brilliant, yeah. of course. Oh, uh, you know, I've been asked that question quite a lot. Like, why do, I think, why do people care so much about beer? I think, first and foremost, I think it's the first thing that you meet from a juvenile to adulthood, like from mm. a male or female standpoint it's kind of the first drink that someone gives you from an alcohol so it's almost the signature of your you know yeah. your adult right yeah. like here you're 18 have a beer right yeah yeah yeah. and uh or you know everyone's oh you're 18 are you gonna go for a pint you know and i think then you nurture a relationship with one of those brands that you like and so you enjoy the flavor of it and the experience of it and when it looks that there could be trouble ahead by its ownership you're like don't ruin what i've got with you you know you are my drink partner don't spoil that i love this experience don't change that and rightly so right i agree i completely agree right it should be you, know, you don't come out with a you know beer and change it you come out and continue to improve it and make it the best experience so those people can go in that journey with you forever right forever yeah. i think so it's right to keep those brands to account and those brewers to account. So yeah, I get it. And that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, those things do when they start, oh, you're gonna change the beer. No, no, I haven't. I've, you know, we've made it better. We've improved it. We've made it even better than it was. Still the same beer, just better, right? <laughs> With glasses like the Jack now to make it the experience even better. So yeah, I get it because I'm like that. You know, I, you know, I eat the same packet of crisps every day. You know, I like the flavor that gives me, I'd hate them if they change. I remember like, mom I know someone changed the flavor profile so like, what's going on now i don't eat it anymore your yeah. moisturizer changes you don't touch it anymore it's like no no so yeah that that relationship with the beer that you love because you, you know you you do you think like, everyone thinks you can try lots of beers but actually you'll always go back to the one you really enjoy and you just yeah. don't the change right and how how has the market changed in those few years the problem with being so successful of course is that a lot of people then try and have a bite of your cake or a, a sip of your pint or something. I don't know. Um, what, um, what, 
what 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 do you have to do to make sure you're at the front of the pack really and not being overtaken by other small dynamic brewers yeah i mean we've really made a point of not trying to look at industry um, yeah other, other than accolading it you know there's lots of great brewers out there you know we've named james and Brewdog, incredible right like incredible mm. what they've done to the industry but there are lots of fabulous brewers out there small medium big who are doing wonderful things but we've we, i guess we've always kept our strategy to us you know like it's always been really true to who we are rather than looking around and going oh god we need to block that out and do something like that to create you know so we've always been quite single-minded about yeah. who we are and the reason we can do that is because we've got an incredible staff team at the business from all the way through from top to bottom you know like they all are interested in what we're doing so yeah i think yes the industry's got incredibly noisy and busy and you know, and there are some wonderful things that are great, but there's plenty of space in there. You know, beer is, you know, the drink of choice. I don't know if it's the first or second, you know, if it's bigger than tea or bigger than water in the world for consumption, you know, mm. you know, and the space is for better, right? It's not for core or basic, you know, that, that space yeah. is dying, you know, and so it's for better beer and there's plenty of people who want to drink a better beer. So if you're better, you'll continue to grow. And so we've just continually continuous improvement, continuous, yeah. you know, like, making the experience as good as it can be, you know, from hop selection to grain management to, you know, technology, you know, engineering is a massive part of our business. You know, we've got, you know, 12 engineers who work full time in our business, keeping our breweries state of the art, efficient, yeah. you know, and, and, and just so that you can make, you can get a lot into beer with, you know, you can get a lot of flavor, a lot of intention, a lot of intensity into it. And if you continually do that by constant improvement, it's like a lot of white boring loaf of white bread and then a great sourdough, you know, yeah, they're yeah. exactly the same, made the same way, made with great ingredients and great people to make that full flavored, you know, yeah, yeah. profile. How many beers do you make now at the moment? What's in the offering? Oh, you know, like, <laughs> Core, there's not, you know, that's probably, I guess, a bit different to most brands that we're not, when our, our offer isn't very big, you know, like yeah. Hells is a massive part of our, you know, Hells is, you know, depending on any given day and COVID not happening, it's between 60 to 70% of our, you know, our wow. business, right? Yeah. Um, Pale, Gentleman's Wit, uh, Off Menu IPA, and uh, we've got, and then we've got IHL, which was, you know, which is, uh, show off so yeah it's five right mm. and then we've just got a periphery of collaborations where we work with chefs or makers or bakers or you know artists who make beers that we'll put out hop one got one one out with hoppers at the moment with one out with mm. home slice at the moment you know you know great restaurateurs who want to make beers with us did a fabulous one with caravan you know so there's yeah so the core range is tight you know it's yeah. five and led by hells you know and then there's just a periphery of stuff that happens seasonally so I want to ask you firstly, what's next for Camden? And then also maybe what's next for you? Because, I mean, I wonder if you'll see yourself doing this forever or if there's other things you want to dip your toe into at the same time or. Yeah. I mean, what's next for Camden? I mean, Camden's on an incredible journey. You know, like I said, there's so much ceiling space for a better beer, you know, and better lager, you know, premiumization of the beer that we all love, you know, 70, 80, 90% of what, we drink in England is lager, yeah. and there's a lot of space for good ones, you know, and we're the leader of the best one. Right? We're growing 70% year on year and have done ever since we started. So continuation of that journey. Yeah, there's definitely other brands. You know, we made an IPA last year and it's a massive player within our portfolio. You know, Pale, they're both fighting for tank space at the moment because people like drinking them because they're yeah. well made. 
Um, so for Camden, it's continuous on the same message, you know, continually making premium lager, premium beer better, you know, making yeah. the best, best, best experience so people can enjoy good, well-made beer and then bring it to the consumer in a fun and exciting, fresh way, right? So that's, that's the journey that that's on and it's pretty solid, that strategy. For me, you know, I'm I'm loving what I'm doing, right? You know, I've got an incredible team where you know we work, you know, we work really well with AB. It's a great, you know, great partnership, great relationship. You know, I've got a few little investments here and there with you know restaurateurs and other brands across the country, you know, which I love being on boards and talking to. So wherever I can bring value is what I'd like to be doing. You know, I don't want to just be sitting creating using space. You know, if someone's interested in me bringing value and actually they'll take it on board. I don't really want to just give thought that doesn't get acted on, right? It's important for me. I want to do things, you know, made footpaths because I could see they were getting finished. Didn't, you know, I like, I like actually a start, not starting to finish, but I like to grow and see it, see things actually happening. So that's where I'll be focused. Before you go, I want to ask you our kind of quick fire questions that we ask everyone that hopefully give us a better idea of Jasper the man. I think we know him pretty well, but we'll find out more. So the first one I wonder is what you'd be doing if you weren't doing this. If you hadn't missed that flight, if you caught that flight, where do you think you'd be right now? Oh, you know, I'd lose sleep over that. Really? You know, really, like I'd be worried. I'd be, you know, no criticism to my Australian, you know, my family yeah. and being back Australia, but I, you know, I just, I was lost when I was, you know, 17, 18, 19. And I hope I might still be lost in Australia doing, you know, maybe still doing footpaths. Yeah. So, I'm not sure where I'd be, but I, you know, if I wasn't doing this interview, I might be having a cold beer, I guess, is where I'd be right now. Okay, quite right. You can get back to it in a sec. What's your worst habits, do you think? I'm obsessed with crisps. Crisps? Yeah, I love crisps. Really? crisp aficionado like you open if i hear the opening of a packet from a mile away i have to go and eat them so I'm a crisp what brand of crisps is, is particularly or is it just anything oh everything i'm particularly passionate about the new proper popcorn crisps that have just come out recently oh i haven't had those oh and they're kind of better for you you know i've obviously been a bit of a tyrell song to nigga you know aficionado for a while but yeah the new proper popcorn crisps are very very good yeah so, so Tyrrells went from doing crisps to vodka and now rosé wine, of course, with Chase. Yeah. Um, maybe you could do the opposite, go from yeah, beer to know, Maybe. But they've done it so well, so there's no opportunity, right? I think that's the same, right? They saw opportunity in crisps, did great. Saw opportunity yeah. there, did great. I think, you know, like Innocent, they saw opportunity to do great juice, went after it and made it better. You know? I think they're those great brands that I've always you know, loved watching and, you know, and getting involved with. I could see a Camden bar snacks range somewhere. Uh, what's the most impressive thing you can cook away from crisps? I'm pretty mean on the barbecue, you know, being right. Australian. And not even being Australian, I never barbecued back home, but I do I do like to do, you know, like I, I love big old joint of marinated lamb shoulder nice. barbecue over a few hours. So, yeah, I love, I love being on the, on the green egg. That's my favourite place. Yeah, the green egg. Lovely. What are you most proud of in your career so far? I'm proud that Lila and Milo, Ella and Liv think Camden's so cool. I think yeah. that's, you know, I think like whenever they see a van or a truck, they always smile and just love it, right? I yeah. think that makes me really happy. I've made something that they're really proud of. So, yeah, that's my proudest moment, to enjoy Camden with them. How old are your kids? 
So Milo 14, Ella 12 and, and Liv 9. So too young to drink, um, right. but I'm sure they'll have a Camden when, as and when they're ready. But, but they, yeah. must have, they must have sipped it. They must have been allowed a sip at certain special occasions. Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, yeah, definitely Milo has. And I think Ella may have at her 12th birthday this year, may have right. sipped <laughs> one, of the, one of the glasses. So yes, but Liv definitely not yet. Yeah. When they're 18, I'm sure they're going to be the most popular kids ever. <laughs> exactly. Let's hope so. It's amazing. Uh, what's been your biggest failure or regret on the other hand so far? Oh, listen, too many failures, but never regret. You know, I right. think you can't fail without, you know, so we make lots of failures, but I never regret any of them because if we're not failing, we're not trying. So no, I haven't got any regrets or, fa- you know, or failures that I'm upset with. So, you know, to date, there's been many and they've made the business and me, they shaped the business and shaped me to where we are today. Of course. Has there been any product lines you put out that that um that just flopped or just didn't sell very well oh plenty you know yeah. plenty come and go and i think you've just got to the big thing with businesses is you've got to understand why they didn't work was it packaging was it style was it too adventurous mm. cut your loss and go again right like and just yeah. bury it and start fast you know i think that's the one thing that we do again we don't just chuck things away we investigate to understand why and you know maybe we're a bit clever maybe the style wasn't right and you know and we figure it out from there and then you know we reset you know we go and so we've done that IPA is a perfect example of that. We launched that last week and it's, you know, it's been in triple digit growth for two and a half years because yeah. you know, we got the, the flavor right, the positioning right, but then we've released other beers that won World Cups, but no one wants to drink them. You know? So there's no wow. point making a beer that no one wants to drink. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be? I'd love to be able to write better. You know, I talk wow. fast and I'm dyslexic. So I wish I could write some of the things I think rather than talk sometimes. So yeah, I wish I was a better writer. What was the last piece of advice you remember giving to someone? Oh, enjoy success. It's really hard to come by. You know, I think you can, right. it's very, you don't realize at the moment how hard it is to win an award or grow or get an accolade or be counted for something. So if you do, we've got to, you know, we party on success is one of our mantras, right? So yeah, you've got to make sure enjoy success when it comes because it doesn't come that often. So how do you celebrate the successes with the team? What's the protocol? Is it everyone just in the brewery having a nice knees up? I can imagine it's pretty yeah, good fun. I mean, there's a lot. We do a lot with beer, you know, like we, <laughs> we eat together as a business every Friday. It's a bit of a, oh, wow. you know, so no matter where you are or what you're doing, there's always food for everybody every Friday. So it's had that going since we started. Um, and there's Thursday desk beers. So we always drink together at five o'clock on a Thursday. There's beers on everyone's desks. Um, yeah. If you want, you don't have to, but if you do. Um, but yeah, mainly in one of our establishments or in one of the establishments around the country that we win in. So yeah, it's always with a beer. With the hells and hells. Yeah. Is there a single phrase that you'd like to banish from the earth or maybe even just from your breweries? Oh, I hate the word pivot at the moment. I'm so, wow. yeah, like we went into COVID full, you know, sales full, you know, growing in exponentially and we'll come out of COVID and we'll fill the sales again. You know, we, what we would, lots of businesses like ours were amazing going in. We just need to bunker down and not pivot and be right. fantastic coming out. Right. I think that's yeah. all the sales with the same gusto and the same, you know, atmosphere and do exactly what you did before. But if you're not better, don't pivot away from what you're really, really good at. That's what I'm saying. Pivot can definitely do. Pivot. At the moment. Tim Warrillow. Do you know Tim who, who founded Fever Tree? Yes, yeah, yeah, I do know Tim, actually. I've been, he beautifully invited me to their tennis tournament last year. One day, oh, wow. amazing. He said pivot as well. So clearly there's a drinks thing about people asking you both to pivot all the whole time. That well, I think you're, you're so single-minded, right? Everyone's like, oh, why don't you go and do a spirit brand? Because well, I'm a beer brand. <laughs> you know, yeah. 
you know, and I like drinking beer, like Tim probably likes drinking tonic, you know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they do it. I mean, they're one of my, you know, mentor brands. Hey, I love what they do. So yeah, and they're very straight. So yeah, no pivoting needed. Absolutely. If you could stick to one age forever, what age would you like to be? You know, apart from the, the experience that we're all going through with COVID right now, I'm really happy with where I am today. So I'd love to stay where I am right now because it's, uh, yeah, the business is great. Family's great. So yeah, yeah. 45 years of making me wiser and happier than I've ever been. So right now it'd be perfect. That's good. In fact, when I met Sir John Hegarty, he gave me a lot of hope that you can still be incredibly cool and energetic at, at that age. He's, I mean, I don't want to shed too many stories on John. But, you know, <laughs> Please do. He does enough push-ups at 70 in a wow. day to make me feel sick for a year, right? Yeah. You know, he's, the, you know, he's amazing. You know, his fitness, everything. He's just, you know, and he's super cool. Looks cooler than me. It's yeah. why I don't know for lunch very often. He's like a rock star. He, he should be a Rolling Stone, really. A Rolling Stone. <laughs> he, should, he should be. <laughs> I'll, let him, I'll let him listen to this and he'll feel very happy. <laughs> okay, good. Um, what have you done recently for the first time? Lots of walking. I live by Hampstead Heath. And so with not being in the office, so I never would have found time for myself being in the office. I go in at seven, leave at seven. And not being able to go in, I've had to fill my days when there's gaps. And so Lila and I have just walking i've been walking for over an hour a day right in the dark or before breakfast or whatever so i'm really enjoying walking you know i enjoy running but running obviously pays a you know wears you out as in got to relax every now and again whereas walking i can do every day and it makes me get jump out of bed and feel great every day is it one of those things that's very i don't know meditative do you do you work problems out yeah yeah. I didn't realize so much right i relieve of everything so i come back clear so i had a walk before i met you this morning you know yeah yeah, you know, because it's always changing. The heat is like you see the seasons. It's cold. There's yeah. people fishing. There's dogs, you know, fighting. There's everything. And so you, mm. by the end of it, you're like, oh, great, let's take the day on without taking yesterday into it, right? So yeah, definitely meditation. I love it, and the kids love it as well. So it's a great place. I live just le- next to Battersea Park, but I've only been here about a month. But having that park there to walk around as much as I can most mornings, it's an amazing thing. And you always see something different, or walk down a different path, or see a different tree or something. Yeah, or do the walk backwards. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. But I think, you know, I love running. I ran for that reason to free myself of, you know, things that were stressing me out. But then my knee or my someone would go and I'd have to stop running for, you know, two or three weeks. Whereas with walking, it's again the same sort of endorphins out of it. I still run two or three times a week, but I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not having to. And if I stop, I'm still doing it. So I'm still feeling just as good with walking than I was with running. So it's amazing. And what is your most treasured possession? Oh, a lot of White Stripes albums. Big White right. Stripes band. Yeah. Wow. I listen to a lot of, you know, that's my favorite band. So yeah, probably, I don't know, it's a hard one to say without being, yeah, so White Stripes albums. Probably okay. Vinyl ones. Yes, vinyl. Yeah. yeah. Not in a kind of panoraki kind of way, just I like collecting vinyl. So yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorites. Is there a book that's influenced you the most? You know, I'm not a massive reader. You know, I read a lot of newspapers, current affairs. Um, I read Arsene Wenger's biography the other day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, and I read it in a day, so it must have been interesting. You know, he's kind of an entrepreneur, but in football, right? Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, no, I guess, yeah, it was quite interesting, but nothing that's really set me like I've taken notes out of, no, but I've, no. I've listened to lots of people and gone to lots of talks and people who've inspired me. So, yeah, no, no book. Do you have a personal motto or, or is there a brand motto that you kind of live by at Camden? You yeah, can, we can have it. two parts to that. 
Yeah, uh, I live by the same thing. You know, I'm pretty sure, like, make it better. You know, I'm constantly want to improve things, and you know, probably my, you know, Liza's probably annoyed by it by me being home so much. You know, I've redone the garden, I've re, you know, but make it better is the big attitude at Camden on everything from improvement of beer to what trucks we buy from an environmental impact standpoint to mm. you know, how the beer gets to bar or how we service accounts from online ordering, all those things we want to just constantly improve it, improve, improve, improve to make the beer experience better because that's, they've been taking that away for so, so long in a lot of industries. And I think, you know, we yeah. want people to enjoy beer for the right reasons. And so we spend a huge amount of time putting those beliefs back into it. So the uniform that the people wear when they drop the beer to you is important. The van that it turns up in, the box that it's delivered in, you know, all those things. So constantly improvement, constantly making stuff better. And, you know, and, and also all the way through, all the way through our teams, making their life great, making it better. You know? So yeah, make it better is definitely a big piece that I love to do. Make it better. Yeah. Finally, what's your idea of happiness? Oh, listen, anywhere with my gang without yeah. distraction and hopefully a cold, couple of cold frothy ones, I reckon, you know, like, yeah, I love, you know, being with the family without yeah. distraction and just, you know, enjoying their company for the, how wonderful they are. So yeah, that's my, you know, my happiness is with them, probably a bit soppy, but yeah, them. And then after a little while, maybe a couple of cold beers to enjoy as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Jasper, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been wonderful. Um, we should have a beer in person one day. Yes. Well, I'll uh, we'll make sure you, uh, we uh, decorate your apartment in Battersea with some beers for the weekend. That's for sure. <laughs> Amazing. I'll take, I'll take you up on that.